Thank you very much. I will again, for the third time, repeat myself and others in order to begin in the beginning and to quote Lenin, who wrote in 1922, communists who have no illusions, who do not give way to despondency, and who preserve their strength and flexibility to begin from the beginning over and over again are not doomed, end of quote. This is maybe Lenin at his Beckettian, referring to Samuel Beckett, best, echoing the line from Beckett's worst word, ho, try again, fail again, fail better. Lenin's conclusion, to begin from the beginning, over and over again, makes it clear that he is not talking only of slowing down the progress, fortifying what is already achieved, but precisely of descending back to the starting point. One should begin from the beginning, but not from where one succeeded in ascending a mountain. That's the metaphor Lenin uses in the previous efforts. And this exactly, I claim, is where we are today, after what Badiou called the obscure disaster of 1989, the definitive end of the epoch which began with the October Revolution. One should therefore reject the continuity with what left, being leftist, meant in the last two centuries. Although sublime moments like the Jacobin climax of the French Revolution, the October Revolution, and so on, will forever remain a key part of our memory, that story is over. Everything has to be rethought. One should begin from the zero point. So, Again, to begin from the beginning means we should enact a clear break from the 20th century communist experience. One should also bear in mind that 1990 was not only the defeat of the communist state socialism, but also the defeat of the Western social democracy, which is now gradually disappearing. Nowhere, I think, is the misery of today's left more palpable than in its principled defense of the social democratic welfare state. As let's just fight to keep that and we are still in the game. But the trickiest mode of the false fidelity to the 20th century communism is, I think, the rejection of all really existing socialisms on behalf of some authentic working class movement just around the corner waiting to explode. Back in 1983, Georges Peyrol, I'll tell you a secret, one of the pseudonyms of Alain Badiou, wrote 30 ways to easily recognize an old Marxist. A wonderful critical portrait, ironic of course, of a traditional Marxist, certain that sooner or later, we just have to be patient and wait, an authentic revolutionary workers' movement will arise again victoriously, sweeping away the capitalist rule as well as the corrupted official leftist parties, trade unions, and so on, and so on. I claim what I already said in the debate this morning that here it may be the most difficult decision to make. You know, when the whole epoch, like 20th century, is from our perspective, for perspective of, from the perspective of many radical, honest leftists, structured as a betrayal of some absent, authentic core. 
we should have councils, immediate democracy, and so on, but we, all we have is a series of betrayal, social democratic corruption, state socialist uh, dictatorship. The difficult Hegelian, I'm a total Hegelian, lesson is that when you drop the betrayals, the lesson of history is you should also drop that what they betrayed. And I think, again, as already said, among others, this is for me the lesson of Chinese cultural revolution. Not only you cannot do it authentically within the state apparatus as state socialism, but you also can do, cannot do it outside. If you permit me a male chauvinist uh, witch, you know Freud somewhere quotes this male chauvinist wisdom, with, it's difficult to live with women, but it's even more difficult without them. Maybe this holds for the state, you know. It's difficult with the state, it can be more difficult without it. So where are we today? But you wonderfully characterized the post-socialist situation as, I quote him, this troubled situation in which we see evil dancing on the ruins of evil. So again, there is no question of any nostalgia. The communist regimes were to use this moralistic term, evil. The problem is that what replaced them is also evil, although in a different way. So referring to previous debates, I think, my God, one thing we should do unambiguously, clearly, when people tell us, as the stupid uh, 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 daily newspaper magazine mentioned, uh, uh, article mentioned before, that we are lazy thinkers who don't possess historical memory. Of course, this is a lie. But sometimes I do detect this automatic reaction with some leftists. You know, when somebody tells us, oh, what about Stalinist crimes? The reaction of, wait a minute, but seen in a totality, don't mention only these, these capitalists were also bad, killing people in Congo and so on. I totally agree with it. But I don't think that we should even dream of accepting this as a kind of, a, how should I put it, a, 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 a ideological bargain to ease our bad self, uh, our bad conscience. You know, like, okay, we admit a little bit of Stalinist crimes if you admit yours so that we all feel better. No, I, I propose a totally crazy solution. If you look at so-called, I'm not afraid to call them, bourgeois critiques of Stalinism, I am again and again surprised how they don't do the job. From my own experience, my reaction after reading Montefiore, uh, all of them, uh, Robert Conquest, is that, my God, these guys live in their illusory world. They don't see how evil it was. Let me give you an example which con concerns this city, a film which I really hate, Leben der Anderen. It's a ferociously anti-communist film. My God, sorry, but it's... Too, too good towards the there. In what sense? You know the story, of course. A corrupted minister wants to screw the wife of a well-known writer and to gain free access, he orders Stasi to control the guy to discover something so that the obstacle will be out of the way. All my old dead air friends told me the same story. Wait a minute, this is crazy. Such an, a writer as the one portrayed in the film would have been under total control all the time, even if there is no minister who wants to screw your wife. That is to say, in a typical liberal way, uh, the film 
the situation the film portrays is a situation which can happen even in a Western liberal country. If you are in a powerful situation, of course you can, under a pretext like chief of secret police, plan. What, what was specific of the DDR, again, up to a point specific, was that, again, if, you see, even if there is no minister, the same thing would have ha evil minister, the same thing would have happened. In a typical liberal ideological way, the film presupposes that behind every evil, there has to be an individual determined by his private passions. Sexual lust, money, lust for power, and so on and so on. So again, we shouldn't feel bad. We should say to bourgeois and so on, sorry, you are too soft towards it. Only we communists will be able, I hope so, to produce the theory of what went wrong there. We should not feel any bad conscience here. So, uh, how then uh, to begin if we want to uh, start communism in a new way? Maybe since a certain epoch is over, since it failed, we should begin with a brief reflection about failure. But you, uh, in his recent book on the communist hypothesis, I think, developed three ways for an emancipatory movement to fail. First, there is, of course, a direct defeat. You are simply crushed by the enemy forces. Then, there is a defeat in the victory itself. You win over the enemy, temporarily at least, by way of taking over the main power agenda of the enemy. The goal is to take state power either in the parliamentary democratic way or in a direct identification of the party with the state. So, again, you win, but you lose in your very victory, becoming like the enemy. On the top of these two versions, there is perhaps, goes on but you, the most authentic but also the most terrifying way to fail. Guided by the correct instinct that every solidification of the revolution into a new state power equals its betrayal, but unable to invent a truly alternative social order, the revolutionary movement engages in a desperate strategy of protecting its authentic purity by the so-called ultra-leftist resort to all destructive terror. But you aptly calls this last version the sacrificial temptation of the void. Quote from Badiou, if subjectivity is afraid not so much to fight but to win, it is because struggle exposes it uh, uh, to a simple failure. The, it is not because struggle sorry, exposes it to a simple failure. No, the victory exposes it to the most fearsome form of failure. The awareness that one won in vain, that victory prepares repetition, restoration that the revolution is never more than a between two states. It is from here that the sacrificial temptation of the void comes. The most fearsome enemy of the politics of emancipation is not the repression by the established order. It is the interiority of nihilism and the cruelty without limits. Let not anyone tell us that we don't know about the horrors of revolution. The cruelty without limits which can um, accompany its void. End of quote. Now I ask for me the key question. What does this mean? Is communism then simply impossible in the sense that it cannot be stabilized into a new order? Even Badiou presents 
the eternal idea of communism as something which returns again and again from Spartacus, Thomas Münzer, Rosa Luxemburg up to the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which means, don't forget, as something which fails again and again. Is then communism to remain the eternal spirit of egalitarian rebellion whose destiny is to fail in one of the three modes deployed by Badiou, to fail or to persist but in subtra subtraction from the domain of state power? The problem for me is the following one. It is easy today to make fun of Fukuyama's notion of the end of history, but the majority of us today is Fukuyamaist. Liberal democratic capitalism is accepted as the finally found formula of the best possible society, at least of the least worst, least bad society, so that all one can do is to render it more just, tolerant, and so on. All the strategies deployed this morning by Saroy Giri. You know, when I was young, we were dreaming about socialism with a human face. I claim 99% of today's left dreamed about, uh, socially, sorry, yeah. about uh, global capitalism with the human face. Now, so a simple but pertinent question arises here. My God, we should not be afraid to ask these questions. But if alternatives to liberal democratic capitalism uh, didn't work, if liberal democratic capitalism ob obviously works at least better than all known alternatives, if it is the least bad form of society, why should we not simply resign to it in a mature way? Why insist on the communist idea against all hopes? Is such an insistence not an exemplary case of the narcissism of the lost cause? Ah, for me, in this attempt to dismiss communism as intrinsically impossible, the very term impossible should make us stop and think. Let's just reflect upon how this predicate impossible is used today. I claim it is used in two opposed, but both of them driven to the excess, to two opposed ways. On the one hand, in the domain of personal freedoms and scientific technology, the impossible is more and more possible, or so we are told. Nothing is impossible. We can enjoy sex in all its perverse versions. Entire archives of music, TV series are available for downloading. Going to space is available to everyone, of course, if you have $40 million. There is the prospect of enhancing our physical, psychic abilities. We can maybe, we will be soon able to manipulate our basic properties through interventions into genome. Up to the techno-gnostic dream achieving, of achieving immortality by way of transforming our identity into a software which can be downloaded from one to another hardware. And things really here, almost everything becomes possible. Like, let me tell you two experiences, not personal, <laughs> from New York. I met some radical people from a radical sexual circle where they told me what they not dream about doing, what they are doing. The latest fashion there is that a uh, 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 surgeon, and chirurg, cuts your penis into two. It works, then it's difficult to urinate, but you can have two women at the same time. <laughs> or with women, they already did it, that they prolong your clitoris into a penis, so you can F yourself. Like, uh, I mean, almost everything is possible. But, but, 
on the other hand, did you notice how as a strict double of this all possibility, how especially in the domain of social and economic relations, our era perceives itself more and more as the era of maturity in which humanity has finally abandoned the old millenarian utopian dreams and accepted the limitations of reality. Today, if anything, the moment you talk about politics, economy, and so on, no, no, they don't say anything is possible. You're always bombarded by you cannot. You cannot engage in large collective acts which necessarily end in totalitarian terror. You cannot cling to the old welfare state. It makes you non-competitive, leads to economic crisis. You cannot isolate yourself from the global market and so on and so on. I think this is maybe one of the keys to our situation. How, again, possibility and impossibility are distributed, you know. You can have two women at the same time, but you cannot change the, the economic laws a little bit even. No. Uh, it is crucial to distinguish clearly here between two impossibilities. The impossible real of a social antagonism and the impossibility on which the predominant ideological field focuses. Today, the ruling ideology endeavors to make us accept the impossibility of a radical change. In order to render invisible the impossible real of the antagonism which cuts across capitalist societies. This impossible is not an a priori limitation which should realistically be taken into account, but it is precisely the domain of strong acts, of interventions which change the coordinates of a situation. An act is more than an intervention into the, the domain of the possible, based on strategic calculations. An act changes the very coordinates of what is possible. And thus, this is for me one of the nice philosophical definitions of an act, an authentic act is something which retroactively creates its own conditions of possibility. So, what does this mean? Again, my eternal question. The problem is how to avoid the alternative uh, of uh, radical social explosions which end in defeat and which are unable to stabilize themselves in a new order. You know, Antonio Gramsci, who was often mentioned these days, I would like to recall something where I'm sympathetic to him. Some of you probably know, if you know Gramsci, that he was publishing his text before he was imprisoned in the early 20s in a, a communist journal called Il Nuovo Ordine, the New Order. I find this fascinating because, as we all know, from the 30s onwards, this signifier was totally kidnapped by extreme right even. If you say today, New Order, well, we immediately know where you stand. I claim maybe if there is a chance for communism to be more than this fleeting dream of emancipatory explosions, maybe we should reappropriate it. So again, uh, why? I want to refer, briefly mention another Gramsci's thought which I think perfectly describes much more than his time, our situation. You know, it goes something like in a moments of transition when the old is dying but the new 
didn't yet form itself, strange, terrifying monsters, apparitions are born. I think this is our situation. In what sense? Peter Sloterdijk, definitely not one of us, but maybe not a complete idiot, Sloterdijk <laughs> remarked that if there is a person to whom they will build monuments 100 years from now, in the future, it will be Lee Kuan Yew, the Singapore leader who invented and realized the so-called capitalism with Asian values. The virus of this capitalism is slowly but surely spreading around the globe. And I think this change has a world historical meaning. Till now, let's be fr frank, there was one good argument for capitalism. It seemed inextricably linked with democracy. And whatever we think about the limitations of democracy, this was something. You know, you had 10, 20 years of dictatorship, uh, South Korea, Chile, but at the end, the system did generate a kind of a push towards democracy. And I think this is perhaps what is so unsettling about today's China. The suspicion that the vicious combination of the Asian knout and the European stock market, this is Trotsky's characterization of the Russian Empire, will prove itself to be economically more efficient than our liberal capitalism. I effectively think that those liberals who think, oh, give the Chinese another 10 years, there will be a new Tiananmen and they will be in democracy, they're simply wrong. What we have today is a capitalism much more dynamic and efficient than our Western capitalism, but definitely with no need for democracy. It's not only China, it's Singapore and so on and so on. So why this re-emergence of direct non-democratic authority? Above and beyond all cultural differences, of course we should drop this stupid racist idea, oh, the Eastern idiots in whose nature is authoritarian regime, there is, I think, an inner necessity for this resurgence of direct authority. The 1968 protest focused against its, uh, its struggle against what was perceived as the three pillars of capitalism, factory, school, family. As the result, each domain was submitted to post-industrial transformation. Factory work is more and more outsourced or in the developed world, reorganized along the post-Fordist, non-hierarchical, interactive teamwork. You know, as they say, everything is autopoetic, there is no master, no servant, and so on. Permanent, flexible, privatized education is more and more replacing universal public education. Multiple forms of flexible sexual arrangements are replacing the traditional family. But are we any better? The left lost in its very victory. The direct enemy was defeated, at least here, like we no longer have strong, such a strong patriarchy and so on, but replaced by a new form of even more direct capitalist domination. In postmodern capitalism, market is invading new spheres which were hitherto considered the privileged domain of the state, from education to prison and security. Now, to grasp these new forms of privatization, one should, I think, critically transform Marxist conceptual apparatus. When, due to the crucial role of what Marx called general intellect, knowledge and social cooperation, uh, when due to the crucial role of general intellect in the creation of wealth, forms of wealth are more and more 
as I quote Marx from Grundrisse, out of all proportion to the direct labor time spent on their production, end of quote, the result is not as Marx expected, the self-dissolution of capitalism, but the gradual relative transformation of profit generated by the exploitation of labor force into rent appropriated by those who privatized the general intellect. That is to say, because of his neglect of the social dimension of general intellect, that's another analysis, but it's typical how whenever Marx talks about general intellect, he all of a sudden, grammatically even, uh, regresses to singular. It's their mensch, their arbeiter, suddenly society disappears. Marx didn't envisage, I claim, the possibility of the privatization of the general intellect itself. And this, I think, is what is at the core of today's struggle for intellectual property. Within this frame, exploitation in the classical Marxist sense is no longer possible, which is why it has to be enforced more and more by direct legal measures. That is to say, by a non-economic force. And here, direct authority is needed. It is needed, for example, to impose the totally arbitrary legal conditions for extracting rent, conditions which are no longer spontaneously generated, generated by market. For example, how did Bill Gates become, he is no longer, the richest man in the world? His wealth have, I claim, nothing to do with the production costs of what Microsoft is selling. One can even argue, argue that Microsoft is paying its workers a relatively high salary. So again, Gates, Bill Gates' wealth is not the result of his success in producing good software for lower prices than his competitors, or in higher exploitation of his hired intellectual workers. Microsoft, for through different strategies, simply imposed itself as an almost universal standard, almost monopolizing the field, a kind of direct embodiment of the general intellect. Bill Gates became the richest man in a couple of decades through appropriating the rent for allowing millions of intellectual workers to participate in the form of the general intellect that he privatized and controls. So again, we are paying here what? To participate in the general intellect, to be able to, to communicate with each other. The same goes up to a point for natural resources. Their exploitation is one of the great sources of rent today, accompanied by the permanent struggle for who will get this rent, the third world people or Western corporations. To provoke my leftist friends, I, tried, I always try to emphasize, to provoke them, how? If you apply strictly the standard Marxist theory to today's relations between Venezuela and the United States, sorry to tell you, Chavez is exploiting the Americans. Because Marx is very emphatic in capital that natural resources are not a source of value. And you know what he gives as an example? Oil, of course. So, of course, I'm not claiming this, that Chavez is exploiting Americans. What I am claiming is that you want to conceptualize in what sense he is not exploiting them, you should change Marxism a little bit. In, so, in this situation, our struggle should focus on those aspects which pose a threat to general intellect, to this transnational open space, to what ultimately Kant already called the public use of reason. Today, 
I will designate to you so that you will not tell what should we do since there is no revolutionary party. We have one pretty important struggle in Europe. The struggle against the ongoing Bologna reform of higher education, which is, I claim, one big concerted attack on the public use of reason. The underlying idea of this reform and all the scandals we know, like the, the abolishment of the Middlesex uh, philosophy department and so on, this is all part of this process. The idea of this reform is to the urge to subordinate high education to, as they put it, the needs of society, to make it useful for the solution of concrete problems. Uh, so, the aim is to produce expert opinions which will resolve problems posed by social agents. What disappears here is simply thinking, in any authentic sense. Because I claim what thinking means, thinking doesn't only offer solutions to problems po posed by society, which of course means state and capital, but to reflect on the very form of these problems, to reformulate them, to discern a problem in the very way we perceive a problem. The reduction of high education to the task of producing socially useful expert knowledge is the paradigmatic form of, again, what Kant called private use of reason in today's global capitalism. For example, the ruling ideology perceives a problem, poor, idiotic, Islamic and other nations are fundamentalists, and the struggle is between our Western enlightenment and uh, how to win over our multicultural against, uh, against uh, fundamentalism. I agree. I don't like fundamentalists. I'm not one of those stupid leftists who think the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so who who Al-Qaeda ultimately bombing United States and so on. But I'm saying something emphatically. The struggle between uh, liberal capitalist multiculturalism and, uh, and, uh, and uh, so-called fundamentalism is a part of the inherent dynamic of global capitalism. As such, we should reject it. It's, uh, again, a disorienting notion, as my German friends would have put it. It's crucial to emphasize here, no, we should change the very terms of the debate. Not, you know, if we use reason privately, then you get easily money from all state foundations on how to enlighten the stupid Arabs, how to, uh, and so on, how to make the women refuse, uh, 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 refuse uh, to be, their, their, uh, refuse their, uh, heterodectomy and so on and so on. No, the true question to be asked is, uh, is why does global capitalist dynamic itself generate fundamentalism? I, to convince you that I'm not talking stupid extreme leftist crap, let me make you an example which should make anything clear to you. Uh, Afghanistan. Sorry, but I'm old enough to remember how 40 years ago Afghanistan, which is today if you read the media, the very embodiment of crazy fundamentalism. Do you know that Afghanistan was the most enlightened of the Middle East uh, Islamic states? It had a secular Western technocratic king. It had a very strong local communist party. It had extreme, I know it from that time, not now retroactively, uh, extreme religious tolerance in Herat, the third city. Do you know that they had a custom that, there were three religions there, Islam, some Christians, uh, no, or some Hindus, I don't know, and the, uh, whatever, and the uh, Buddhists, they had a 
habit of visiting each other and so on. And what happened then? Communists took power in order to save them. Soviet Union intervened in order to screw them. United States intervened. And as the result of this being caught in the global dynamics, Afghanistan became fundamentalist. It's not that they are stupid people sticking to their traditions. No, their tradition is to be, sorry to tell you, their tradition is to, is to be almost secular, open, modern. That's the question. This is what you will not get with private use of reason. So again, it is crucial to link the ongoing push towards this streamlining the high, higher education to the process of enclosing the commons of intellectual products, of privatizing general intellect. Uh, the capitalist modernity imposed the twin hegemony of legal ideology and education, state school system. Subjects were interpolated as patriotic free citizens, subjects of the legal order, while individuals were formed into legal subjects through the compulsory universal education. The gap was thus maintained between bourgeois and citizen, between the egotist utilitarian individual and the citoyen dedicated to universal interest of the state. And insofar as in the spontaneous ideology, ideology is limited to the universal sphere of citizenship, as they put it, privately I just follow my interests, publicly when I fight for my state in politics, I mean ideology. Uh, uh, the very gap between ideology and non-ideology was thus transposed into ideology. What happened, nonetheless, after 68, I claim, is that uh, capital, uh, in post-68 capitalism is that economy itself, the logic of market and competition, is imposing itself as the hegemonic ideology. For example, as I just mentioned, in education, we are witnessing the gradual dismantling of the classic bourgeois school ideological state apparatus. The school system is less and less the compulsory network elevated above market, organized directly by state, bearer of enlightened values, liberté, égalité, fraternité, on behalf of the sacred formula of lower costs, high efficiency. When I read this, I get a Goebbels reaction. I draw my gun. It is progressively penetrated by different forms of the famous formula is PPP, public-private partnership. Then, in the very organization and legitimization of power, the electoral system is more and more conceived on the model of market competition. Elections are a commercial exchange where voters buy the option which offers to do the most, in the most efficient way the job of maintaining social order and so on and so on. On behalf of the same formula, lower costs, higher efficiency, even some functions which should be I think, at least, the exclusive domain of the state, like running prisons, are more and more privatized. Uh, not only prisons, but like the army is no longer based on universal conscription, but composed of hired mercenaries. As the example of Berlusconi makes it clear in Italy, even the state bureaucracy is no longer perceived as a kind of Hegelian universal, uh, universal class. So, Quite logically, insofar as economy is considered the sphere of non-ideology, this brave new world of global commodification considers itself post-ideological. 
But I claim, of course, the ideological state apparatuses are here more than ever. However, insofar as, again, ideology is located into subjects in contrast to utilitarian individuals, this hegemony of the economic sphere appears as the absence of ideology. What this means is not that ideology simply directly reflects economy. We, I claim, fully remain within ideological state apparatuses. Economy functions here as an ideological model. In contrast to real economic life, which definitely does not follow the idealized liberal market models. So again, this is another crucial thing. We should never forget what we, when we attack market, that what we are attacking is an ideology. It's not at all what great powers United States are doing. They are as protectionist as they want. They have stronger and stronger state interventions and so on and so on. So again, uh, it's not too much that I have, so I perceive you as that domina who whips me, and please don't yet start yet, yes. Uh, so uh, what kind of shift in the function of ideology does this self-erasure of ideology imply? How does ideology function in a non-ideological way? I'm sorry if some of you will know this line of thought, but it's crucial, so I will nonetheless repeat it. Here, I think one should fully assert, with all my criticism of Marx, the actuality of Marx's theory of commodity fetishism, Warren fetishismus. You know, it's fashionable to say, oh, that's the old naive Marx. No, read it closely, but with naive openness. What is Marx saying there? Something extremely interesting. He, he says, fetishism is not the obvious illusion concealing reality. Marx is not saying, for example, money is in reality just a social object, part of social interaction, but we mysteriously perceive money as a magic object with a property, whatever. No, as Marx makes it clear if you read him closely, he says money is just a condensation of social relations, and we know it. Most of us. I mean, if you ask a typical bourgeois subject, he will not say, oh, money is my fetish. It's, no, he will say money is just a piece of paper giving you the right to the social product. So where is fetishism? In social reality itself. Fetishism is in how, what we are, in how we act. And that's something that I still find fascinating. When Marx says, you know, his famous formula from Capital, sie wissen das nicht, aber sie tun es. They don't know it, but they are doing it. He's not saying the enlightenment stupidity, you know, haha, you are doing one thing, but you don't know what you are doing, you are thinking another thing. No, Marx is saying what you don't know is the illusion you are following, you are practicing in your reality. So we have a wonderful distinction between your subjective opinion, the way things appear to you, and, how should I put it, the way things really appear to you, embodied in reality. And this, I think, is the key more than ever to today's ideology. The key term here was invented by, proposed by my Austrian friend Robert Faller. I hope you know it. You should read his book, uh, Illusionen uh, der Anderen. Uh, the term of inner interpassivity. It's a wonderful idea of how it's not only this Hegelian list der Vernunft, where we are active through 
others. We can also be passive through others in the sense that what we transpose onto others is our passivity itself. Passive reactions and so on. No, it's no longer this idea, I sit back, others do the work with me, but I work crazy all the time, others can be passive for me. For example, traditional example, my preferred one. You know, in Tibet, this uh, prayer wheels, no? You write your prayer on a paper, put it in, you turn it around, and then you can think about sex, whatever, but uh, objectively you pray. Now you will say, haha, primitive society. Sorry to tell you, in our societies we are exactly the same. Let me mention what I always mention, Kent uh, uh, Laughter, you know, the stupid TV series, Cheers, uh, Friends, where the, uh, the laughter is part of the soundtrack. Can you imagine the paradox of it? I come home late in the evening, tired as a dog, I look at TV, I don't laugh, just, eh? and at the end I feel released, relieved. Why? TV set has taken over the laughter. It did it for me. And what I claim is that belief can function in an exactly same way. Our society is penetrated by objective beliefs. Nobody believes, but belief functions. You know this classical example. You have a, a, a son. It's Sunday afternoon. You want, uh, 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 and, oh, sorry, it's Christmas time and, uh, I ask you, do you believe in Santa Claus? You say, no, I'm not an idiot, of course not. I pretend to for my son. Then I ask your son. He will say, well, I'm not an idiot, of course it's not, but I pretend to believe not to disappoint my parents and so on and so on. But it doesn't matter. It functions as a belief. And I claim, now I will stop here, I developed this in my book, but I think this is crucial that this is how in our, this is for me cynical functioning of ideology in post-ideological world. Nobody has to believe. It's even better if you don't believe. But belief still socially functions. Sorry to repeat another joke which is even better known, but it exemplifies so perfectly what I want to say, this old, I know you know it, I'm sorry, Niels Bohr anecdote, you know, when he was visited by a friend in a countryside house and uh, the friend saw their horseshoe, this superstitious item which allegedly keeps the evil spirits out of the house. And the friend asked Niel, Niels Bohr of, Copenhagen, no? Uh, uh, but you are a scientist. Why do you have this superstitious object there? Do you believe in it? The friend answered, I'm not stupid. No, sorry, Niels Bohr answered, of course I don't believe it. I'm not stupid. I'm a scientist. Then, but why do you have it there? Niels Bohr gave a perfect answer. No wonder he was a reader of Kierkegaard also. He said, I don't believe it in it, of course, but I have it there because I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it. That's democracy today. We are all cynical, but we somehow believe it works without you believing in it. Now, let's go, it's soon, I believe. Let's make the next step. Uh, what, uh, uh, what kind of political space does this post-ideological cynical universe imply? Here, I get really worried. As you will probably hear from our good friend Tamas tomorrow morning, in Western and Eastern Europe, there are signs of a long-term rearrangement of the political space. Till recently, our political space was dominated by two main parties, which addressed the entire electoral body. A right-of-center party, Christian Democrats, liberal conservative people, whatever, People's Party, and the left-of-center party, socialist, social democratic, progressive, liberal, whatever you want, with smaller parties addressing a more narrow electorate. 
ecologists and so on. Now, I claim there is progressively emerging one party which stands for capitalism as such, usually with relative tolerance towards abortion, gay rights, religious and ethnic minorities and so on, and opposed to this party is a stronger and stronger anti-immigrant populist party which on its fringes is accompanied, sometimes even merged with direct racist neo-fascist groups. There are clear cases here. For example, from what I know, in Poland, now ex-socialist communists disappeared. You have Donald Tusk, a pure liberal, and then you have the Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Okay, one of them is dead now. It's only Tweedledee, okay. Uh, 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 the Kaczynski brothers, uh, nationalists. And uh, Berlusconi in Italy did something unique. He simply united the two. He is global capitalism and at the same time uh, populism. Again, here we use, uh, we need private use, sorry, public use of reason to, to see that this is a deadlock. Only the left will be able to break this deadlock. If our political space will remain to be, uh, to be uh, determined by this opposition, and then liberals can endlessly blackmail us, you know. Okay, we have small differences, but my God, against those who are uh, against abortions, against gay marriage, we should be all together, and so on, and so on. We are lost if we, uh, uh, if we subscribe to this deadlock. So... Again, how, how can we break up this? Are we nonetheless condemned to this? It is here that, I have just uh, uh, two, three pages. It is here that, no, I have bad consciousness. I, it is here that I think, I know I will create myself many, friend, many enemies here, uh, that the originality of the Western thought enters. The way, I'm Eurocentrist, I admit it. In its three great historical Ruptures. The wager of Western thought is that radical negativity, whose first and immediate political expression is egalitarian terror, is not condemned to remain a short ecstatic outburst after which things have to return to normal run. On the contrary, radical negativity, this undermining of every traditional hierarchic order, can articulate itself into a new positive order in which it acquires the stability of a new form of life. This is for me the meaning, and I'm a total atheist, of course, of the Holy Spirit in Christianity. Faith can not only be expressed in, but exists as the collective of believers. This faith is in itself based on terror. Now you will ask me, but where is revolutionary terror there? It is. Remember, remember Christ's words which are crucial for me. I bring sword, I bring fire, not peace. If you don't hate your mother, your father, you are not my follower. This is the true meaning of Christian love your neighbor. If you don't act, I love my neighbor, but I hate basically all neighbors insofar as they are father, mother, and so on, you are not a Christian. So again, it failed, but the original idea of Christianity was an egalitarian social link which cancels the hierarchic order. Now, this may surprise you, but another example of such an egalitarian link based on terror is democracy itself. The democratic axiom is that the place of power is empty. There is no one who is directly qualified for this post, either by tradition, charisma, or by his or her expert and leadership properties. 
This is why, before democracy can enter the stage, terror has to do its work, forever dissociating the place of power from any natural or directly qualified pretender. The gap between the achievement of democracy is to turn what is in traditional authoritarian power structure, the moment of its greatest crisis, the moment of transition, when for a moment the throne is empty, this moment always causes panic in authoritarian regimes, into the very resort of its strength. Democratic elections are the moment of passing through the zero point when the complex network of social links is dissolved into the purely quantitative multiplicity of voting individuals. So the moment of terror, of the dissolution of all hierarchic links, is thus re-enacted and transformed into the foundation of a new order. But today, when we know the limitation of the formal democratic procedure, the question is, can we imagine a step further in this direction? of the reversal of egalitarian negativity into a new order. So again, it is not enough to remain faithful to the idea of communism. One has to locate in historical reality antagonisms which make this idea a practical urgency. So again, the only true question today is, do we endorse the predominant naturalization of capitalism or does today's global capitalism contain strong enough antagonisms which prevent its indefinite reproduction. There are, I claim, at least four such antagonisms. The looming threat of ecological catastrophe, the inappropriateness of private property for the so-called intellectual products, the socio-ethical implications of new techno-scientific developments, especially in biogenetics, and last but not least, new forms of apartheid, new walls, new slums. These forms all point towards what Hart and Negri call commons, the shared substance of our social being whose privatization is a violent act which should be also resisted if necessary with violent means. The commons of culture, the immediately socialized forms of cognitive capital, this is what intellectual property is about. The commons of external nature, threatened by pollution and exploitation. The commons of in, inner, our inner nature, the biogenetic inheritance of humanity. What all these struggles share is the awareness of the destructive potentials up to the self-annihilation of humanity itself, if the capitalist logic of enclosing these commons is allowed a free run. Let me give you an example. The main, the main lesson to be learned from the threat of ecological catastrophes is that humankind should get ready to live in a much more, I hate this fashionable world, but here it's meant literally, nomadic way. Local or global changes in environment will probably impose the need for unheard of large-scale social transformations. Let us say that a gigantic volcanic eruption will make the whole of island, Island, sorry, the state, uninhabitable. Where will the people of Island move? Under what conditions? Furthermore, what if the northern Siberia will become more inhabitable and appropriate for agriculture, as some people claim that you will have all that frozen forest 
civilized, while large sub-Saharan regions will become too dry for a population to live there. How will the exchange of population be organized? When similar things happened in the past, social changes occurred in a wild, spontaneous way, with violence and destruction. Such a prospect is impossible, self-destructive in today's condition, with arms of mass destruction available soon to all nations. One thing is clear. National sovereignty will have to be radically redefined. New levels of global cooperation invented. And what about the immense changes in economy and consumption due to new weather patterns, shortages of water, and so on? Through what process of decision will the required changement be decided and executed? So I claim, I don't have time to develop it, read my last book if you're more interested in it, that all these problems that we are confronting are basically the problems of the commons. And I'm not in a panic, but nonetheless a little bit apocalyptic. In all these domains, we are approaching a kind of, slowly a kind of a zero point. Listen, I was three weeks ago in China. I spoke with a guy there, one of the bosses of their Academy of uh, Sciences, and he told me openly, he showed me the documents, the Chinese state program, it's a big co-production between state and private capital, is to not only developed uh, biogenetic uh, technology, but to apply it to where basically they told me the long-term goal is to all the Chinese people with, now I quote their program, the po progressive regulation of the, uh, of the physical and psychic properties of the Chinese people. Now, the prospect is immense. I'm asking who will decide how. It's absolutely clear that neither market nor the state will do it. Even look at the United States today. I yeah, got your subtle body language. Yeah. Uh, look at the United States. You know where Obama, whom I support, uh, disappointed me. How did he react to this immense catastrophe? We don't even know the, the consequences of that oil spilling there. By playing the old state regulating legal role. I will kick in the ass, the British Petroleum and so on. You know, this is the liberal way. You find a culprit. Sorry, but with such a great catastrophe. The first thing to say is it's ridiculous even to talk about how somebody will recover the costs. You cannot. Point two, it's not only I'm, I, def I, I for some time wanted to write a text in defense of British Petroleum claiming that, do you know that they are all using the same, the same machines and so on? It's pure chance by mistake that it happened there. Again, we need here collective acts. Neither the market nor the state will do it. Of course, and now, uh, of course, what the, now here lies nonetheless the true danger. I am not saying that, uh, sorry? I know, I know all the data, my God. I know all the data. I, because a friend of a friend of mine works for some American aid. They did, first, they, first he told me that they looked into other companies and found it, yeah, 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 but you know what I mean. They don't now put, you know, you're, of course they are maybe the worst. But it's the logic of the system which compelled them to be this. You know, it's like I wanted to write another crazy article. He's guilty the time longer, yeah? <laughs> you know that guy, that crook who stole 60 billion? 
I wanted to, in defense of what was his name, Bernard Bernie Madoff. Yeah, the way they put the, even with an anti-Semitic tone, to put blame on him, sorry, he just embodied at its purest the logic of the system. And it was almost for me anti-Semitic. Ah, now we find him, a dirty Jew who cheated us all. But nonetheless, let me just finish. The, I think that capitalism will be forced, that this will be the result of this last financial crisis, to deal with these three sets of problems, to somehow organize itself. And I claim, that's my conclusion, the choice will be communism or socialism. To survive, capitalism will have to become socialist. The reason I don't like the term socialism is that, well, already the well-known Otto Weiniger wrote, socialism is Aryan, communism is Jewish, no? That is to say, socialism always has this principle of, potentially, of organic unity, cooperation, and so on and so on. So this is my answer to liberals who fear you as a communist want some dictatorship and so on. No, what I'm saying is, those who claim, oh, you as a communist are utopian. No, there is only one utopia, true utopia today. The utopia is that the, thing, the things the way they are, our precious welfare state, can go on indefinitely. I claim that, and I'm not talking about uh, 100 years. I'm cynical like you. If you tell me in 100 years we will have trouble, I will say, F off, like, I will be dead, I don't care. I'm talking about 10, 20 years. Maximum where all these problems will explode, and this will be the real harsh choice. Either a kind of, either we will all have some kind of, it's already starting in Italy and so on, some kind of Asian values capitalism. Of course, it will be westernized, but basically the same. A kind of a newly segregated state with, uh, you know, it will not be the old authoritarianism. It will be something like Berlusconi is crucial, I think, or did you see that wonderful film, 30 years old, Terry Gillian, Brazil? He got it for the first time that new forms of authorities will be what is Berlusconi, like Groucho Marx in power, you know. A, a regime which doesn't directly terrorize you, but all the authoritarian struggle, it will be that, and capitalism will have to re-socialize itself in a new authoritarian to the most fearsome form of failure, the awareness that one won in vain, that victory prepares repetition, restoration, that the revolution is never more than a between two states. It is from here that the sacrificial temptation of the void comes. The most fearsome enemy of the politics of emancipation is not the repression by the established order. It is the interiority of nihilism and the cruelty without limits let not anyone tell us that we don't know about the horrors of revolution, the cruelty without limits which can um, accompany its void. End of quote. Now I ask for me the key question. What does this mean? Is communism then simply impossible in the sense that it cannot be stabilized into a new order? Even Badiou presents the eternal idea of communism as something which returns again and again from Spartacus, Thomas Muncher, Rosa Luxemburg up to the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which means, don't forget, as something which fails again and again. Is then communism to remain the eternal spirit of egalitarian rebellion whose destiny is to fail in one of the three modes deployed by Badiou, to fail or to persist but 
in subtra- subtraction from the domain of state power. The problem for me is the following one. It is easy today to make fun of Fukuyama's notion of the end of history. But the majority of us today is Fukuyamaist. Liberal democratic capitalism is accepted as the finally found formula of the best possible society, at least of the least worst, least bad society. So that all one can do is to render it more just, tolerant, and so on. All the strategies deployed this morning by Saroy Giri. You know, when I was young, we were dreaming about socialism with a human face. I claim 99% of today's left dreamed about, uh, socially, uh, sorry, uh, about uh, global capitalism with a human face. Now, so a simple but pertinent question arises here. My God, we should not be afraid to ask these questions. But if alternatives to liberal democratic capitalism uh, didn't work, if liberal democratic capitalism ov- obviously works at least better than all known alternatives, if it is the least bad form of society, why should we not simply resign to it in a mature way? Why insist on the communist idea against all hopes? Is such an existence not an exemplary case of the narcissism of the lost cause? Ah, For me, in this attempt to dismiss communism as intrinsically impossible, the very term impossible should make us stop and think. Let's just reflect upon how this predicate impossible is used today. I claim it is used in two opposed, but both of them driven to the excess, to two opposed ways. On the one hand, in the domain of personal freedoms and scientific technology, the impossible is more and more possible, or so we are told. Nothing is impossible. We can enjoy sex in all its perverse versions. Entire archives of music, TV series are available for downloading. Going to space is available to everyone, of course, if you have $40 million. There is the prospect of enhancing our physical, psychic abilities. We can maybe, we will be soon able to manipulate our basic properties through interventions into genome. Up to the techno-gnostic dream of achieving immortality by way of transforming our identity into a software which can be downloaded from one to another hardware. And things really here, almost everything becomes possible. Like, let me tell you two experiences, not personal, (laughs) from New York. I met some radical people from a radical sexual circle where they told me what they not dream about doing, what they are doing. The latest fashion there is that a uh, 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 surgeon and chirurg cuts your penis into two. It works, then it's difficult to urinate, but you can have two women at the same time. <laughs> or with women, they already did it, that they prolong your clitoris into a penis, so you can F yourself. Like, uh, I mean, almost everything is possible. But, but, on the other hand, did you notice how as a strict double of this all possibility, how especially in the domain of social and economic relations, our era perceives itself more and more as the era of maturity in which humanity has finally abandoned the old millenarian utopian dreams and 
accepted the limitations of reality. Today, if anything, the moment you talk about politics, economy, and so on, no, no, they don't say anything is possible. You're always bombarded by you cannot. You cannot engage in large collective acts which necessarily end in totalitarian terror. You cannot cling to the old welfare state. It makes you non-competitive, leads to economic crisis. You cannot isolate yourself from the global market and so on and so on. I think this is maybe one of the keys to our situation. How, again, possibility and impossibility are distributed, you know. You can have two women at the same time, but you cannot change the, the economic laws a little bit even. No. Uh, it is crucial to distinguish clearly here between two impossibilities. The impossible real of a social antagonism and the impossibility on which the predominant ideological field focuses. Today, the ruling ideology endeavors to make us accept the impossibility of a radical change. In order to render invisible the impossible real of the antagonism which cuts across capitalist societies. This impossible is not an a priori limitation which should realistically be taken into account, but it is precisely the domain of strong acts, of interventions which change the coordinates of a situation. An act is more than an intervention into the, the domain of the possible, based on strategic calculations. An act changes the very coordinates of what is possible. And thus, this is for me one of the nice philosophical definitions of an act, an authentic act is something which retroactively creates its own conditions of possibility. So, what does this mean? Again, my eternal question. The problem is how to avoid the alternative uh, of uh, radical social explosions which end in defeat and which are unable to stabilize themselves in a new order. You know, Antonio Gramsci, who was often mentioned these days, I would like to recall something where I'm sympathetic to him. Some of you probably know, if you know Gramsci, that he was publishing his text before he was imprisoned in the early 20s in a, a communist journal called Il Nuovo Ordine, the New Order. I find this fascinating because, as we all know, from the 30s onwards, this signifier was totally kidnapped by extreme right even. If you say today, New Order... Well, we immediately know where you stand. I claim maybe if there is a chance for communism to be more than this fleeting dream of emancipatory explosions, maybe we should reappropriate it. So again, uh, why? I want to refer, briefly mention another Gramsci's thought which I think perfectly describes much more than his time, our situation. You know, it goes something like in a moments of transition when the old is dying but the new didn't yet form itself, strange, terrifying monsters, apparitions are born. I think this is our situation. In what sense? Peter Sloterdijk, definitely not one of us, but maybe not a complete idiot, Sloterdijk <laughs> remarked that if there is a person to whom they will build monuments hundred years from now in the future, it will be Lee Kuan Yew, 
the Singapore leader who invented and realized the so-called capitalism with Asian values. The virus of this capitalism is slowly but surely spreading around the globe. And I think this change has a world historical meaning. Till now, let's be fr frank, there was one good argument for capitalism. It seemed inextricably linked with democracy. And whatever we think about the limitations of democracy, this was something. You know, you had 10, 20 years of dictatorship, uh, South Korea, Chile, but at the end, the system did generate a kind of a push towards democracy. And I think this is perhaps what is so unsettling about today's if you read the media, the very embodiment of crazy fundamentalism. Do you know that Afghanistan was the most enlightened of the Middle East uh, Islamic states? It had a secular Western technocratic king. It had a very strong local communist party. It had extreme, I know it from that time, not now retroactively, uh, extreme religious tolerance in Herat, the third city. Do you know that they had a custom that, there were three religions there, Islam, some Christians, uh, no, or some Hindus, I don't know, and the, uh, whatever, and the uh, Buddhists, they had a habit of visiting each other and so on. And what happened then? Communists took power in order to save them. Soviet Union intervened in order to screw them. United States intervened, and as the result of this being caught in the global dynamics, Afghanistan became fundamentalist. It's not that they are stupid people sticking to their traditions. No, their tradition is to be, sorry to tell you, their tradition is to, is to be almost secular, open, modern. That's the question. This is what you, you will not get with private use of reason. So again, it is crucial to link the ongoing push towards this streamlining the high, higher education to the process of enclosing the commons of intellectual products, of privatizing general intellect. Uh, the capitalist modernity imposed the twin hegemony of legal ideology and education, state school system. Subjects were interpolated as patriotic free citizens, subjects of the legal order, while individuals were formed into legal subjects through the compulsory universal education. The gap was thus maintained between bourgeois and citizen, between the egotist utilitarian individual and the citoyen dedicated to universal interest of the state. And insofar as in the spontaneous ideology, ideology is limited to the universal sphere of citizenship, as they put it, privately I just follow my interests, publicly when I fight for my state in politics, I mean ideology, uh, uh, the very gap between ideology and non-ideology was thus transposed into ideology. What happened, nonetheless, after 68, I claim, is that uh, capital, uh, in post 68 capitalism is that economy itself, the logic of market and competition, is imposing itself as the hegemonic ideology. For example, as I just mentioned, in education, we are witnessing the gradual dismantling of the classic bourgeois school ideological state apparatus. The school system is less and less the compulsory network, elevated above market, organized directly by state, bearer of enlightened values, liberté, égalité, fraternité, 
on behalf of the sacred formula of lower costs, high efficiency. When I read this, I get a Goebbels reaction. I draw my gun. It is progressively penetrated by different forms of the famous formula is PPP, public-private partnership. Then in the very organization and legitimization of power, the electoral system is more and more conceived on the model of market competition. Elections are a commercial exchange where voters buy the option which offers to do the most, in the most efficient way the job of maintaining social order and so on and so on. On behalf of the same formula, lower costs, higher efficiency, even some functions which should be, I think at least, the exclusive domain of the state, like running prisons, are more and more privatized. Uh, not only prisons, but like the army is no longer based on universal conscription, but composed of hired mercenaries. As the example of Berlusconi makes it clear in Italy, even the state bureaucracy is no longer perceived as a kind of Hegelian universal, uh, universal class. So, quite logically, insofar as economy is considered the sphere of non-ideology, this brave new world of global commodification considers itself post-ideological. But I claim, of course, the ideological state apparatuses are here more than ever. However, insofar as, again, ideology is located into subjects in contrast to utilitarian individuals, this hegemony of the economic sphere appears as the absence of ideology. What this means is not that ideology simply directly reflects economy. We, I claim, fully remain within ideological state apparatuses. Economy functions here as an ideological model. Uh, in contrast to real economic life, which definitely does not follow the idealized liberal market models. So again, this is another crucial thing. We should never forget what we, when we attack market, that what we are attacking is an ideology. It's not at all what great powers United States are doing. They are as protectionist as they want. They have stronger and stronger state interventions and so on and so on. So again, uh, it's not too much that I have. So I perceive you as that domina who whips me, and please don't yet start yet, yes. Uh, so uh, what kind of shift in the function of ideology does this self-erasure of ideology imply? How does ideology function in a non-ideological way? I'm sorry if some of you will know this line of thought, but it's crucial, so I will nonetheless repeat it. Here, I think one should fully assert, with all my criticism of Marx, the actuality of Marx's theory of commodity fetishism, Warren fetishismus. You know, it's fashionable to say, oh, that's the old naive Marx. No, read it closely, but with naive openness. What is Marx saying there? Something extremely interesting. He, he says, fetishism is not the obvious illusion concealing reality. Marx is not saying... For example, money is in reality just a social object, part of social interaction, but we mysteriously perceive money as a magic object with a property, whatever. No, as Marx makes it clear if you read him closely, he says money is just a condensation of social relations. And we know it. 
Most of us. I mean, if you ask a typical bourgeois subject, he will not say, oh, money is my fetish. It's no. He will say money is just a piece of paper giving you the right to the social product. So where is fetishism? In social reality itself. Fetishism is in how, what we are, in how we act. And that's something that I still find fascinating. When Marx says, you know, his famous formula from Capital, sie wissen das nicht, aber sie tun es. They don't know it, but they are doing it. He's not saying the enlightenment stupidity, you know, haha, you are doing one thing, but you don't know what you are doing, you are thinking another thing. No, Marx is saying what you don't know is the illusion you are following, you are practicing in your reality. So we have a wonderful distinction between your subjective opinion, the way things appear to you, and, how should I put it, the way things really appear to you, embodied in reality. And this, I think, is the key more than ever to today's ideology. The key term here was invented by, proposed by my Austrian friend Robert Faller. I hope you know it. You should read his book, uh, Illusionen uh, der Anderen. Uh, the term of inner interpassivity. It's a wonderful idea of how. It's not only this Hegelian list der Vernunft, where we are active through others. We can also be passive through others in the sense that what we transpose onto others is our passivity itself. Passive reactions and so on. No, it's no longer this idea, I sit back, others do the work with me, but I work crazy all the time, others can be passive for me. For example, traditional example, my preferred one, you know, in Tibet, this uh, prayer wheels, no? You write your prayer on a paper, put it in, you turn it around, and then you can think about sex, whatever, but uh, objectively you pray. Now you will say, haha, primitive society. Sorry to tell you, in our societies we are exactly the same. Let me mention what I always mention, Kent uh, uh, Laughter, you know, the stupid TV series, uh, Cheers, Friends, where the, uh, the laughter is part of the soundtrack. Can you imagine the paradox of it? I come home late in the evening, tired as a dog, I look at TV, I don't laugh, just, eh? and at the end I feel released, relieved. Why? TV set has taken over the laughter. It did it for me. And what I claim is that belief can function in an exactly same way. Our society is penetrated by objective beliefs. Nobody believes, but belief functions. You know this classical example. You have a, a, a son. It's Sunday afternoon. You want, uh, 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 and, oh, sorry, it's Christmas time and, uh, I ask you, do you believe in Santa Claus? You say, no, I'm not an idiot, of course not. I pretend to for my son. Then I ask your son. He will say, well, I'm not an idiot, of course it's not, but I pretend to believe not to disappoint my parents and so on and so on. But it doesn't matter. It functions as a belief. And I claim, now I will stop here, I developed this in my book, but I think this is crucial, that this is how... In our, this is for me cynical functioning of ideology in post-ideological world. Nobody has to believe. It's even better if you don't believe. But belief still socially functions. Sorry to repeat another joke which is even better known, but it exemplifies so perfectly what I want to say, this old, I know you know it, I'm sorry, Niels Bohr anecdote, you know, when he was visited by a friend in a countryside house and uh, the friend saw their horseshoe, this superstitious item which allegedly keeps the evil spirits 
out of the house. And the friend asked Niels Bohr of Copenhagen, no? Uh, uh, but you are a scientist. Why do you have this superstitious object there? Do you believe in it? The friend answered, I'm not stupid. No, sorry, Niels Bohr answered, of course I don't believe it. I'm not stupid. I'm a scientist. Then, but why do you have it there? Niels Bohr gave a perfect answer. No wonder he was a reader of Kierkegaard also. He said, I don't believe it in it, of course, but I have it there because I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it. That's democracy today. We are all cynical, but we somehow believe it works without you believing in it. Now, let's go, it's soon, I believe. Let's make the next step. Uh, what, uh, uh, what kind of political space does this post-ideological cynical universe imply? Here, I get really worried. As you will probably hear from our good friend Tamas tomorrow morning, in Western and Eastern Europe, there are signs of a long-term rearrangement of the political space. Till recently, our political space was dominated by two main parties, which addressed the entire electoral body. A right-of-center party, Christian Democrats, liberal conservative people, whatever, People's Party, and the left-of-center party, socialist, social democratic, progressive, liberal, whatever you want, with smaller parties addressing a more narrow electorate ecologists and so on. Now, I claim there is progressively emerging one party which stands for capitalism as such, usually with relative tolerance towards abortion, gay rights, religious and ethnic minorities and so on. And opposed to this party is a stronger and stronger anti-immigrant populist party which on its fringes is accompanied, sometimes even merged with, direct racist neo-fascist groups. There are clear cases here. For example, from what I know, in Poland, now ex-socialist communists disappeared. You have Donald Tusk, a pure liberal, and then you have the Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Okay, one of them is dead now. It's only Tweedledee, okay. Uh, 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 the Kaczynski brothers, uh, nationalists. And uh, Berlusconi in Italy did something unique. He simply united the two. He is global capitalism and at the same time uh, populism. Again, here we use, uh, we need private use, sorry, public use of reason to, to see that this is a deadlock. Only the left will be able to break this deadlock. If our political space will remain to be, uh, to be uh, determined by this opposition, and then liberals can endlessly blackmail us, you know. Okay, we have small differences, but my God, against those who are uh, against abortions, against gay marriage, we should be all together, and so on, and so on. We are lost if we, uh, if we subscribe to this deadlock. So... Again, how, how can we break up this? Are we nonetheless condemned to this? It is here that, I have just uh, uh, two, three pages. It is here that, no, I have bad consciousness. I, it is here that I think, I know I will create myself many, friend, many enemies here, uh, that the originality of the Western thought enters. The way, I'm Eurocentrist, I admit it. In its three great historical Ruptures. The wager of Western thought is that radical negativity, whose first and immediate political expression is egalitarian terror, is not condemned to remain a short ecstatic outburst after which things have to return to normal run. 
On the contrary, radical negativity, this undermining of every traditional hierarchic order, can articulate itself into a new positive order in which it acquires the stability of a new form of life. This is for me the meaning, and I'm a total atheist, of course, of the Holy Spirit in Christianity. Faith can not only be expressed in, but exists as the collective of believers. This faith is in itself based on terror. Now you will ask me, but where is revolutionary terror there? It is. Remember, remember Christ's words which are crucial for me. I bring sword, I bring fire, not peace. If you don't hate your mother, your father, you are not my follower. This is the true meaning of Christian love your neighbor. If you don't act, I love my neighbor, but I hate basically all neighbors insofar as they are father, mother, and so on. You are not a Christian. So again, it failed, but the original idea of Christianity was an egalitarian social link which cancels the hierarchic order. Now, this may surprise you, but another example of such an egalitarian link based on terror is democracy itself. The democratic axiom is that the place of power is empty. There is no one who is directly qualified for this post, either by tradition, charisma, or by his or her expert and leadership properties. This is why, before democracy can enter the stage, terror has to do its work forever dissociating the place of power from any natural or directly qualified pretender. The gap between... Sorry, the achievement of democracy is to turn what is in traditional authoritarian power structure, the moment of its greatest crisis, the moment of transition, when, for a moment, the throne is empty, this moment always causes panic in authoritarian regimes, into the very resort of its strength. Democratic elections are the moment of passing through the zero point when the complex network of social links is dissolved into the purely quantitative multiplicity of voting individuals. So the moment of terror, of the dissolution of all hierarchic links, is thus re-enacted and transformed into the foundation of a new order. But today, when we know the limitation of the formal democratic procedure, the question is, can we imagine a step further in this direction of the reversal of egalitarian negativity into a new order? So again, it is not enough to remain faithful to the idea of communism. One has to locate in historical reality antagonisms which make this idea a practical urgency. So again, the only true question today is, do we endorse the predominant naturalization of capitalism or does today's global capitalism contain strong enough antagonisms which prevent its indefinite reproduction? There are, I claim, at least four such antagonisms. The looming threat of ecological catastrophe, the inappropriateness of private property for the so-called intellectual products, the socio-ethical implications of new techno-scientific developments, especially in biogenetics, and last but not least, new forms of apartheid, new walls, new slums. These forms all point towards what Hart and Negri call commons, the shared substance of our social being whose privatization is a violent act which should be also resisted, if necessary, with violent means. 
the commons of culture, the immediately socialized forms of cognitive capital, this is what intellectual property is about, the commons of external nature threatened by pollution and exploitation, the commons of in inner, our inner nature, the biogenetic inheritance of humanity. What all these struggles share is the awareness of the destructive potentials up to the self-annihilation of humanity itself if the capitalist logic of enclosing these commons is allowed a free run. Let me give you an example. The main, the main lesson to be learned from the threat of ecological catastrophes is that humankind should get ready to live in a much more, I hate this fashionable world, but here it's meant literally, nomadic way. Local or global changes in environment will probably impose the need for unheard of large-scale social transformations. Let us say that a gigantic volcanic eruption will make the whole of island is slowing down the progress, fortifying what is already achieved, but precisely of descending back to the starting point. One should begin from the beginning, but not from where one succeeded in ascending a mountain. That's the metaphor Lenin uses in the previous efforts. And this exactly, I claim, is where we are today after what Badiou called the obscure disaster of 1989, the definitive end of the epoch which began with the October Revolution. One should therefore reject the continuity with what left being leftist meant in the last two centuries. Although sublime moments like the Jacobin climax of the French Revolution the October Revolution, and so on, will forever remain a key part of our memory, that story is over. Everything has to be rethought. One should begin from the zero point. So, again, to begin from the beginning means we should enact a clear break from the 20th century communist experience. One should also bear in mind that 1990 was not only the defeat of the communist state socialism, but also the defeat of the Western social democracy, which is now gradually disappearing. Nowhere, I think, is the misery of today's left more palpable than in its principled defense of the social democratic welfare state. As let's just fight to keep that and we are still in the game. But the trickiest mode of the false fidelity to the 20th century communism is, I think, the rejection of all really existing socialisms on behalf of some authentic working class movement just around the corner waiting to explode. Back in 1983, Georges Peyrol, I'll tell you a secret, one of the pseudonyms of Alain Badiou, wrote 30 ways to easily recognize an old Marxist. A wonderful critical portrait, ironic of course, of a traditional Marxist, certain that sooner or later, we just have to be patient and wait, an authentic revolutionary workers' movement will arise again, victoriously sweeping away the capitalist rule, as well as the corrupted official leftist parties, trade unions, and so on, and so on. I claim what I already said in the debate this morning, that here it's maybe the most difficult decision 
to make. You know, when the whole epoch, like 20th century, is from our perspective, from, perspective of, from the perspective of many radical, honest leftists, structured as a betrayal of some absent, authentic core. We should have councils, immediate democracy, and so on, but we, all we have is a series of betrayal, social democratic corruption, state socialist uh, dictatorship. The difficult Hegelian, I'm a total Hegelian, lesson is that when you drop the betrayals, the lesson of history is you should also drop that what they betrayed. And I think, again, as already said, among others, this is for me the lesson of Chinese cultural revolution. Not only you cannot do it authentically within the state apparatus as state socialism, but you also can do, cannot do it outside. If you permit me a male chauvinist uh, witch, you know Freud somewhere quotes this male chauvinist wisdom, with, it's difficult to live with women, but it's even more difficult without them. Maybe this holds for the state, you know. It's difficult with the state, it can be more difficult without it. So where are we today? But you wonderfully characterized the post-socialist situation as, I quote him, this troubled situation in which we see evil dancing on the ruins of evil. So again, there is no question of any nostalgia. The communist regimes were, to use this moralistic term, evil. The problem is that what replaced them is also evil, although in a different way. So referring to previous debates, I think, my God, one thing we should do unambiguously clearly, when people tell us, as the stupid uh, 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 daily newspaper magazine mentioned, uh, uh, article mentioned before, that we are lazy thinkers who don't possess historical memory. Of course, this is a lie. But sometimes I do detect this automatic reaction with some leftists, you know, when somebody tells us, oh, what about Stalinist crimes? The reaction of, wait a minute, but seen in a totality, don't mention only these, these capitalists were also bad, killing people in Congo and so on. I totally agree with it. But I don't think that we should even dream of accepting this as a kind of, a, how should I put it, a, 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 a ideological bargain to ease our bad, self, uh, our bad conscience. You know, like, okay, we admit a little bit of Stalinist crimes if you admit yours so that we all feel better. No, I, I propose a totally crazy solution. If you look at so-called, I'm not afraid to call them, bourgeois critiques of Stalinism, I am again and again surprised how they don't do the job. From my own experience, my reaction after reading Montefiore, uh, all of them, the Robert Conquest, is that, my God, these guys live in their illusory world. They don't see how evil it was. Let me give you an example which con concerns this city, a film which I really hate, Leben der Anderen. It's a ferociously anti-communist film. My God, sorry, but it's... Too, too good towards the there. In what sense? You know the story, of course. A corrupted minister wants to screw the wife of a well-known writer and to gain free access, he orders Stasi to control the guy to discover something so that the obstacle will be out of the way. All my old dead air friends told me the same story. Wait a minute, this is crazy. Such an 
a writer as the one portrayed in the film. He would have been under total control all the time, even if there is no minister who wants to screw your wife. That is to say, in a typical liberal way, uh, the film, the situation the film portrays is a situation which can happen even in a Western liberal country. If you are in a powerful situation, of course you can, under a pretext like chief of secret police, plan. What, what was specific of the DDR, again, up to a point specific, was that, again, if, you see, even if there is no minister, the same thing would have ha evil minister, the same thing would have happened. In a typical liberal ideological way, the film presupposes that behind every evil, there has to be an individual determined by his private passions. Sexual lust, money, lust for power, and so on and so on. So again, we shouldn't feel bad. We should say to bourgeois and so on, sorry, you are too soft towards it. Only we communists will be able, I hope so, to produce the theory of what went wrong there. We should not feel any bad conscience here. So, uh, how then uh, to begin if we want to uh, start communism in a new way? Maybe since a certain epoch is over, since it failed, we should begin with a brief reflection about failure. But you, uh, in his recent book on the communist hypothesis, I think, developed three ways for an emancipatory movement to fail. First, there is, of course, a direct defeat. You are simply crushed by the enemy forces. Then, there is a defeat in the victory itself. You win over the enemy, temporarily at least, by way of taking over the main power agenda of the enemy. The goal is to take state power either in the parliamentary democratic way or in a direct identification of the party with the state. So, again, you win, but you lose in your very victory, becoming like the enemy. On the top of these two versions, there is perhaps, goes on but you, the most authentic but also the most terrifying way to fail. Guided by the correct instinct that every solidification of the revolution into a new state power equals its betrayal, but unable to invent a truly alternative social order, the revolutionary movement engages in a desperate strategy of protecting its authentic purity by the so-called ultra-leftist resort to all destructive terror. But you aptly calls this last version the sacrificial temptation of the void. Quote from Badiou, if subjectivity is afraid not so much to fight but to win, it is because struggle exposes it uh, uh, to a simple failure. There. It is not because struggle sorry, exposes it to a simple failure. No, the victory exposes it, China. The suspicion that the vicious combination of the Asian knout and the European stock market this is Trotsky's characterization of the Russian Empire, will prove itself to be economically more efficient than our liberal capitalism. I effectively think that those liberals who think, oh, give the Chinese another 10 years, there will be a new Tiananmen and there will be in democracy, they're simply wrong. What we have today is a capitalism much more dynamic and efficient than our Western capitalism, but definitely with no need for democracy. It's not only China, it's Singapore and so on and so on. 
So why this re-emergence of direct non-democratic authority? Above and beyond all cultural differences, of course we should drop this stupid racist idea, oh, the Eastern idiots in whose nature is authoritarian regime, there is, I think, an inner necessity for this resurgence of direct authority. The 1968 protest focused against its, uh, its struggle against what was perceived as the three pillars of capitalism, factory, school, family. As the result, each domain was submitted to post-industrial transformation. Factory work is more and more outsourced or, in the developed world, reorganized along the post-Fordist, non-hierarchical, interactive teamwork. You know, as they say, everything is autopoietic, there is no master, no servant, and so on. Permanent, flexible, privatized education is more and more replacing universal public education. Multiple forms of flexible sexual arrangements are replacing the traditional family. But are we any better? The left lost in its very victory. The direct enemy was defeated, at least here, like we no longer have strong, such a strong patriarchy and so on, but replaced by a new form of even more direct capitalist domination. In postmodern capitalism, market is invading new spheres which were hitherto considered the privileged domain of the state, from education to prison and security. Now, to grasp these new forms of privatization, one should, I think, critically transform Marxist conceptual apparatus. When, due to the crucial role of what Marx called general intellect, knowledge and social cooperation, uh, when due to the crucial role of general intellect in the creation of wealth, forms of wealth are more and more as I quote Marx from Grundrisse, out of all proportion to the direct labor time spent on their production, end of quote, the result is not as Marx expected, the self-dissolution of capitalism, but the gradual relative transformation of profit generated by the exploitation of labor force into rent appropriated by those who privatized the general intellect. That is to say, because of his neglect of the social dimension of general intellect, that's another analysis, but it's typical how whenever Marx talks about general intellect, he all of a sudden, grammatically even, uh, regresses to singular. It's their mensch, their arbeiter, suddenly society disappears. Marx didn't envisage, I claim, the possibility of the privatization of the general intellect itself. And this, I think, is what is at the core of today's struggle for intellectual property. Within this frame, exploitation in the classical Marxist sense is no longer possible, which is why it has to be enforced more and more by direct legal measures. That is to say, by a non-economic force. And here, direct authority is needed. It is needed, for example, to impose the totally arbitrary legal conditions for extracting rent, conditions which are no longer spontaneously generated, generated by market. For example, how did Bill Gates become, he is no longer, the richest man in the world? His wealth have, I claim, nothing to do with the production costs of what Microsoft is selling. One can even argue, argue that Microsoft is paying its workers a relatively high salary. So again, Gates' 
Bill Gates' wealth is not the result of his success in producing good software for lower prices than his competitors or in higher exploitation of his hired intellectual workers. Microsoft, for, through different strategies, simply imposed itself as an almost universal standard, almost monopolizing the field, a kind of direct embodiment of the general intellect. Bill Gates became the richest man in a couple of decades through appropriating the rent for allowing millions of intellectual workers to participate in the form of the general intellect that he privatized and controls. So again, we are paying here what? To participate in the general intellect, to be able to, to communicate with each other. The same goes up to a point for natural resources. Their exploitation is one of the great sources of rent today, accompanied by the permanent struggle for who will get this rent, the third world people or Western corporations. To provoke my leftist friends, I, tried, I always try to emphasize, to provoke them, how? If you apply strictly the standard Marxist theory to today's relations between Venezuela and the United States, sorry to tell you, Chavez is exploiting the Americans. Because Marx is very emphatic in capital that natural resources are not a source of value. And you know what he gives as an example? Oil, of course. So, of course, I'm not claiming this, that Chavez is exploiting Americans. What I am claiming is that you want to conceptualize in what sense he is not exploiting them, you should change Marxism a little bit. In, so, in this situation, our struggle should focus on those aspects which pose a threat to general intellect, to this transnational open space, to what ultimately Kant already called the public use of reason. Today, I will designate to you so that you will not tell what should we do since there is no revolutionary party. We have one pretty important struggle in Europe. The struggle against the ongoing Bologna reform of higher education, which is, I claim, one big concerted attack on the public use of reason. The underlying idea of this reform, and all the scandals we know, like the, the abolishment of the Middlesex uh, philosophy department and so on, this is all part of this process. The idea of this reform is to the urge to subordinate high education to, as they put it, the needs of society, to make it useful for the solution of concrete problems. Uh, so, the aim is to produce expert opinions which will resolve problems posed by social agents. What disappears here is simply thinking, in any authentic sense. Because I claim what thinking means, thinking doesn't only offer solutions to problems po posed by society, which of course means state and capital, but to reflect on the very form of these problems, to reformulate them, to discern a problem in the very way we perceive a problem. The reduction of high education to the task of producing socially useful expert knowledge is the paradigmatic form of, again, what Kant called private use of reason in today's global capitalism. For example, the ruling ideology perceives a problem, poor, idiotic, Islamic and other nations are fundamentalists, and the struggle is between our Western enlightenment and uh, 
how to win over our multicultural tolerance over against, uh, against uh, fundamentalism. I agree. I don't like fundamentalists. I'm not one of those stupid leftists who think the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so who who Al-Qaeda ultimately bombing United States and so on. But I'm saying something emphatically. The struggle between uh, liberal capitalist multiculturalism and, uh, and, uh, and uh, so-called fundamentalism is a part of the inherent dynamic of global capitalism. As such, we should reject it. It's, uh, again, a disorienting notion, as my German friends would have put it. It's crucial to emphasize here, no, we should change the very terms of the debate. Not, you know, if we use reason privately, then you get easily money from all state foundations on how to enlighten the stupid Arabs, how to, uh, and so on, how to make the women refuse, uh, 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 refuse uh, to be, their, their, uh, refuse their, uh, uh, heterodectomy and so on and so on. No, the true question to be asked is, uh, is why does global capitalist dynamic itself generate fundamentalism? To convince you that I'm not talking stupid extreme leftist crap, let me make you an example which should make anything clear to you. Uh, Afghanistan. Sorry, but I'm old enough to remember how 40 years ago Afghanistan, which is to